0: So when you average it, it might look like, we're here we have enough, but when you look at what's really happening on the ground across the country, it's periodic, localized shortages all the time.
1: Hi, I'm John Yeager, and this is a special bonus edition of Bloodworks 101, the podcast designed to inspire you to donate either time, money, or blood. The man you heard right there is Bloodworks President and CEO Kurt Bailey. He was unpacking what we call our new Consumer Insights Survey. There's a lot in this survey that tells us a lot about our donors, or if you will, our consumers. And while Kurt Bailey usually describes himself as inherently optimistic, what he sees in this survey are some disturbing trends.
0: What we saw in the 10 years prior to the pandemic is we saw a decline in donors in the United States in every age band under age 60. So this is not a young donor problem. This is everybody under age 60 the um, uh, number of donors dropped. Uh, And it is truly remarkable that donations from uh, those persons over age 60 increased, which is an amazing fact. But nevertheless, the math just works out that if you don't increase the number of donors under age 60, you can't make it up by increasing uh, blood collections from donors over age 60. The math just doesn't work. So we have to solve this problem of increasing donors under age 60. And and the reason it's a problem is because for the last three years, the amount of blood collected in the United States each year has more or less equaled uh, the amount of blood needed each year across the nation. And that is the tightest we have ever been in the blood supply since the data has been collected for 20 years or so, at least that I've seen. Well, it sounds okay. It matches. So isn't that a good thing? No. And the reason is because that's at the national level. At the local level, or at the level of today, or tomorrow, or next week, or next month, it doesn't match. And so, when you average it, it might look like look like we're here. We have enough, but when you look at what's really happening on the ground across the country, it's periodic localized shortages all the time. And that's what leads to the pronouncements of a national blood shortage, which, of course, the Red Cross did um, again on September 11th. Um, And what we need to do is get the blood supply robust enough so that those localized shortages go away. And I should add, you know, the independent blood centers, uh, Bloodworks is one of of 35 or 40-odd independent blood centers in the country. We're really quite good at sharing. And so we help each other out. We have a network. We have systems and processes. And so um, it's not a case where there's a localized shortage in one part of the nation and some other blood center is flush. That's not the case. We share readily. And so that mechanism for doing the best we can with all the blood in the country exists. And even then, we still have days where there's just not enough somewhere in the country.
1: And our our donor base is aging
0: out. The donor base is indeed getting older. Um, what is remarkable about that is they're donating more. And uh, they're healthier. Um, uh, they're living longer. They're more active. Uh, and they're recognizing that donating blood can be a really fulfilling part of their later years. And I just think it's beautiful. We see that in the data. We see it in our donor centers and in our blood drives. It's a wonderful aspect of our community. Um, you know, that being said, there's just not enough people who are over age 60 to compensate for a drop in donations uh, in those, that part of the population that's under age 60.
1: There's also an issue of convenience that this survey addresses. Tell me a little bit more about that.
0: Well, what we wanted to understand with the survey is, is what matters most to the population. And, and there were a few things that jumped out. Um, convenience, convenience, convenience. If we don't make it easy, then folks are going to do something else with their time. And um, convenience today does really look different than convenience, say, 20 years ago. And how is it different? Well, it's different because we define our experience, whether it's for a meal, whether it's for a hotel, an airline flight, whatever the case may be, we now define the experience as an end-to-end from the moment you think about doing something, like donating blood, to the moment you're done and you've booked your next appointment. That's an end-to-end experience. And it's much more intricate or or, um, uh, multifaceted than ever. There's a digital component, which we didn't have 20 years ago. And so folks learn about blood online. Folks schedule an appointment online. Folks get a reminder by text or by email. Um, And so this part of the experience that's digital is just if not more important than the part of the experience that's in person. Well, that end-to-end experience uh, needs to be fast, smooth, convenient, and easy. And the reality is, ours is not always fast, convenient, smooth, and easy. Our experience looks a lot like it used to 10, 20 years ago. And if we don't make it easier, all the data shows people just won't do it.
1: All right, so public attitudes towards blood donation, what's the most pressing challenge?
0: Well, let me start by saying what's not the challenge. Um, There is no data that suggests Americans are less... Altruistic than in the past. There is no data to suggest that somehow over the last ten years humans have changed behavior from the previous ten thousand years and no longer wish to help their fellows. Humans remain altruistic. Humans still want to help humans. That's not the challenge. the The challenge is um, first, it's got to be convenient. We have to make it accessible. And accessibility includes education. And one of the things we know from our surveys is, um, of the people who have who have never donated blood, but at least have considered it, 40% quote unquote, just don't know where to start. And what that means is, you have to get over that inertia. You have to give them some basic education, really fast and easy, so they can figure out, okay, here's how you do it. Here's whether I'm eligible or not, here's where I go, here's how I sign up, all those things, and it can't be really involved. People's time is really valuable. It needs to be fast and easy. Um, And that idea of convenience, of course, extends uh, into, well, where are we collecting blood? And so the challenge for Bloodworks is to be out in the community and to be able to get um, community sponsors, groups, businesses, churches, um, fan bases of sports teams, community groups, whatever the case, to put in the effort to sponsor a blood drive, and, and there, um, that partnership with community groups is equally important as the altruism of the individual donor. And sometimes we talk about, well, people need to want to donate. Well, they do. What we need, though, is a group that that sponsors and is the conduit to that altruism. They're the connector. And so we need to be present in the community, and we in turn need community groups to, to come forward and partner with us.
1: Payment for blood—we uh, already provide plenty of incentives. We have these campaigns where you know you can win tickets to this, you can win a flight to that. Um, so we do offer incentives as as some motivator for uh, for blood donation. Tell me about um, the concept of paying for for you know paying donors for their blood.
0: Well, um, payment for blood is an old idea. And um, at the start of transfusion medicine, uh, which is about 100 years old, it was quite common, at least in the United States, for persons to be compensated for um, their blood. And it wasn't until um, after World War II, when concerns about blood safety um, related to uh, payment for blood ultimately caused the FDA to move to labeling blood components with either volunteer or paid and um, the hospitals didn't want units labeled paid because the public had associated that with a less safe transfusion and so the hospital stopped ordering those and said we want volunteer label units only so effectively the FDA moved the country to an all-volunteer system. Okay, fine. Well, we are um, now 50 years later, odd, and um, we do have different data now. And what the data shows is it's not so much whether somebody receives something for donating. They could receive a gift like a coffee cup or they could receive a $5 gift card or they could receive a $20 gift card, a higher amount. Um, It's not so much that that determines whether the, the... donation is safe. What determines whether it's safe is the quality of the testing, and the quality of the testing is outstanding today, far better than it's ever been in the past. And furthermore, are you recruiting from groups that have uh, a low incidence of infectious disease? And we do, so we don't go after parts of the population where we know there's a high incidence of infectious disease. So through those two mechanisms, you basically are looking at the general population, You you and me. And the truth is, between you and me, there may be differences on what we expect uh, in our donation. And some people, actually a lot of people say, yeah, I kind of do want to be thanked. And how do you thank me? Well, some people are happy with a T-shirt, but a lot of people really would prefer a gift card. And it's really interesting, the survey research we've done overwhelmingly confirms that people do want to be thanked or appreciated or reimbursed. And they see that quite differently. People actually see it differently, whether it's a thank you, a reimbursement, or an appreciation. And um, they do prefer a gift card. You know, go, they can take their gift card and go get um, lunch at Starbucks, or they can do whatever they want. But what the public is saying is, if you want more of us to consider this, there's a little bit of a quid pro quo. Just say thank you. It's polite. <laughs> Well, what we don't see is we don't see avarice. You know, we, what we don't really see is we don't see a big segment of the population that is, is looking to um, uh, make a living off of donating blood. That would be an impossibility um, uh, anyway. But what we do see is just folks saying, you know, um, we don't get directly thanked by the patient. They'll never meet the stranger. You know, it, it, it's, uh, donating blood is the only time that many people will ever save someone's life in their whole life. It's the only way they could do that. Um, and yet they'll never meet that person. They won't ever know their name. They probably won't even know where they are. And so it's this faith that you're going to save somebody's life and a token, something that allows them to be in that moment of saving someone's life seems really important. And, um, What seems pretty clear is, for whatever reason, the traditional item, like a coffee mug or a t-shirt, that doesn't do it. It doesn't work. Maybe for some, for sure for some, but not for everybody. And for some reason, a little thank you, like a gift card, does.
1: How much are we talking?
0: Um, You know, the vast majority of people um, would, uh, well, the average is is approximately $17, (laughs) (laughs) which we have confirmed through our surveys, and it varies. Some people are happy with five. Some people would prefer 25 and, you know, everything in between. But it's not exorbitant considering what we're asking of folks. We're asking for part of their body.
1: Um, Why are you optimistic about 2023 and into next year?
0: Well, one of of the reasons I'm optimistic is we have become very clear here at Bloodworks what are our priorities? And we've become very clear on the opportunities and the challenges that we need to tackle as a united, single team, one blood works in order to make sure that every patient who needs transfusion receives it, that any member of a community who wants to donate blood has that opportunity. And with that clarity, you get focused, you tee up the next round of problems to solve, And as a team, you go after it. And I would say our our clarity and focus and our teamwork is as good or better than it's ever been before. We are also armed with knowledge and we're more knowledgeable now about what needs to change in this traditional model of a blood center, in this traditional model of um, donating blood in order to render it um, more accessible um, and more effective than it's been, you know, in recent years. So, have we solved the problem of increasing donations in every age band under age sixty? No. And we are going to have to experiment and learn, and this is going to be hard. But do we have a glimmer of of we have a glimmer of what that solution is? We do, we do. And do we have a sense of what tools we're going to need in order to build that solution? We do. And as a consequence, with creativity and teamwork, you can do anything. And that's what we have right now, and we have lots of it.
1: Anything uh, that I haven't asked you that you feel is important to add right now?
0: Probably the most powerful encouragement to um, uh, donating blood is when a close family member or friend asks you to do it. So um, what our research shows pretty clearly is there's ways in which you can nudge somebody in order to do something and in the case of blood donation the most powerful nudge is if someone close to you says hey John will you donate donate blood and even better if they say hey John will you donate blood with me and so one of the programs that we're going to need to stand up is some way to encourage current blood donors to ask others hey will you donate blood another really interesting finding um, is for um, a long time, there's been a belief with some substantiation that um, the reason why folks don't donate blood is is they're afraid of needles. And it is certainly true that the people have fear of needles. Uh, but what's interesting is people who donate blood also have fear of needles. So it's not always the factor that matters most. And lots of people, of course, every day conquer fears. And even for those folks who may uh, find needles uncomfortable, they choose to donate blood anyway. Okay, well, that was an interesting um, discovery, of course, which is, which is not new. What we have learned, which, which we think is new, is we do realize now that folks have other anxieties. So another source of anxiety is, well, what will I be asked when I fill out the questionnaire or I go into the screening room uh, to get my blood pressure taken, what are they going to ask me to determine whether or not I'm eligible to donate blood? They're going to ask me personal things, right? Well, what things? Because most people are not comfortable with being asked anything at all. So for some folks, they're sufficiently uncomfortable about what they'll be asked, that they will not donate blood, And the figures might surprise you. Our uh, most recent survey for women under age 25, 15% will not donate blood because they're concerned about what they'll be asked in the questionnaire or in the screening room. 10% of men under 25, roughly 6% of either gender over 25. Do you know how many people that equates to? 600,000 people in Washington and Oregon are sufficiently concerned about what they'll be asked in the questionnaire or in the screening room that they will not donate blood. And I can tell you that is a much more powerful driver than fear of needles.
1: I would have never guessed it was that high.
0: We were really surprised by that finding. But what's interesting is, is the reason we tested this was because we have phlebotomists folks, the friendly folk with the needles, and they're out um, you know, collecting blood every day and we got to having conversations and they said, you know what's really interesting is how often I'm not at work I'm somewhere else and someone learns what I do for a living and they say, yeah, but what are you going to ask me? I'm really concerned about being asked about drug use, sexual activity, birth control, whatever the case might be, and they're curious, and they have a whole set of ideas on what they'll be asked, many of which are not accurate, they're concerned about things we don't ask about, but they don't know. And that's the point. They don't know. What they want, and our survey data reveals this very clearly, they want clear and accessible information about what they'll be asked. Some people want that to be confidential, so if they go, say, to use a confidential online eligibility checker, that data won't be shared. They want it private. And a number of people just want a video. And you can sort of imagine a TikTok with um, a rather bored-looking blood collection specialist or phlebotomist being asked, well, don't you want to know about this, that, or the other? And they say, no, we don't care. We just care about this. And then uh, that's a way in which, in a humorous fashion, you can communicate with a video. Here's what really goes on in the screening room. Um, Another interesting piece of data, we also surveyed and we asked folks um, how many uh, blocks of time in any given week do you have to donate blood? And we defined block of time as two hours on a certain day, so say 10 to 12 on a Monday. Um, And fascinatingly, um, the majority of the population only has one or two time windows and interestingly um, women have less reported flexibility than men Um, and if you are an ethnic minority you have even less flexibility you have the least flexibility of all so the reported flexibility for example of of women and non-caucasian is the lowest they're the ones who have the least ability to actually uh, come in at a certain day and time over the week and, and that doesn't get into a location. That's just the t- time of, and day. So if one doesn't make a wide array of appointments available, the majority of the population just simply isn't going to find one that works for them. And so again, it gets to this point about accessibility. Um, and I think it gets to an, in, an interesting question about equity. If you're not accessible to everybody, are you accessible?
1: What did we call the survey?
0: We do the survey in-house at Bloodworks, and we've built our knowledge of how to do these over the last three years. Um, the um, You know, if you think about a leading consumer brand, Starbucks, American Express, Delta Airlines, you pick it, they're running these surveys all the time, and they've been running these surveys for decades. This is um, a part of their consumer insights capability, and they invest enormous resources because they want to ensure a product in the market people actually want. What we actually call it is we call it consumer insights. And the reason we are very deliberate about that so, um, in the world of, of, of blood banking, the use of the word consumer is foreign. But people are consumers before they're donors. And so, what does that really mean? Well, when someone consumes, they're making a decision, they're making a choice. So I can choose to donate blood today, or I can choose to do something else. So I'm choosing before I'm donating. That makes me a consumer first and a donor second. So we wanted to be really clear about this is, this is intended to understand, to get insight into why people are making the choices they're making.
1: That was Bloodworks Northwest president and CEO Kurt Bailey talking about the new Bloodworks Northwest Consumer Insights Survey and how we're using it to guide our way forward. And that just about wraps it up for this edition of Bloodworks 101. I'm your host, John Yeager. See you next time.